If you would, turn to Ephesians chapter 6, verse 5. Ephesians 6, verse 5. And if you would, read along with me. Verse 5. Bond servants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart, as you would Christ, not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bondservants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord, not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bondservant or is free. Masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and that there is no partiality with him. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, God, Lord, we thank you, Lord. I thank you for this church, Lord. I thank you for this gathering, these people, Lord, as we worship together you, Lord, how encouraging it is, Lord. I thank you, Lord, for your word, God, inspired men writing your word, Lord, your word to us. God, I pray we hold that we understand the value that is that you have spoken to us, Lord. I pray, Lord, as we come across a difficult text, Lord, that we understand that this is truth and we shouldn't shy away from it, that we should dig in and, and, and learn what we can, Lord, knowing that you are a good God that loves us. So be with us this morning as we go through this text, Lord. Help us to have understanding. pray your Holy Spirit just fills our hearts, Lord, our minds, understand what you are saying, Lord, in your son's name. Amen. I've said this a number of times from here, from the pulpit. We believe here at Country Oaks in expositional verse-by-verse preaching. And what's that mean? Expositional just means we believe to let, letting the scripture preach for itself. In other words, my job as a pastor to get up here is really to get out of the way of what scripture has to say. To teach what scripture says, not my own ideas and... Um, and to pull out meaning from Scripture instead of putting meaning into Scripture. That's expositional. Verse by verse just means we go verse by verse, and sometimes very slowly, sometimes quicker. Um, But going verse by verse means we don't skip difficult passages in books. And this morning we have a difficult passage. It's difficult because of our historical context as a country. Look at verse 5. It says this, Bondservants... Obey your earthly masters. I know for many of us and many that aren't Christians, there's a lot of questions surrounding slavery and the Bible. I'm going to try to answer a lot of those questions today. I'm not going to answer all those questions. We're not going to do an exhaustive understanding of slavery in Scripture. But there's three points, three questions I'd like to answer today. The first one is this. What is a bondservant? Second question is, what is the co- conduct of a godly bondservant? And the third question is, what is the conduct of a godly master? That first question, we're going to talk about what a bondservant is and what scripture has to say about slavery. The second two questions, we're really going to dive into the text this morning. So let's start with that first question. What is a bondservant? It says in verse 5, bondservants, obey your earthly masters. Bondservant in Greek is doulos. Doulos is a very popular word in the New Testament, mostly talking about our relationship with Christ. The ESV translates this bondservant. The King James translates this word servant. 
The NASB translates this word slave. The literal meaning is slave. That's the most literal meaning of this word, doulos. But I think personally, as I've studied this this week, and actually my mind has changed on this as I've done a, a deep study on this word, I think bondservant is probably a better translation, and here's why. For most of us, bondservant is a neutral word. It doesn't have meaning that comes with it. Most of us have never used that word bondservant before unless just reading scripture. Slave, on the other hand, is a loaded word in our country especially, again, for us Americans. Therefore, I like the word bondservant, ESV, because it's not a loaded word, and it literally means a person bound to serve. It's what, what the word means. But since slavery is such an important topic, I'd like to address it this morning. There's three questions about slavery in Scripture I'd like to uh, go over before we dive into our text a little bit deeper. First question is this. Why does the Bible allow slavery or bond servanthood? This is actually a very complicated subject, a very uh, um, hard subject to, to, to answer, a hard question to answer, but, but to help us, we're going to do a little broad view of this. There's really two different types of slavery that we see in, in Scripture. You have Old Testament slavery, which is slavery that was allowed within the, the nation of Israel, And you have New Testament slavery, which is slavery in a pagan context, the Roman Empire. We're going to focus, obviously, on New Testament slavery because we're in the New Testament. This passage is a New Testament passage. I just want you to think about this. Most historians believe and estimate that there is up to 60 million slaves in the Roman Empire. That one-third of the population of Rome was slaves. This culture, the Roman Empire, this pagan culture, was entrenched in slavery in the culture. And that's the context in the first century that the church was spreading in, that the gospel was going out into. But the problem with that, again, that word slavery, is that Roman slavery was very different than European and American slavery in the 19th century. And there's five differences, and I think this helps us understand kind of what that word bondservant truly means in the context of Ephesians. There's five differences, and I want to quickly go over them. Actually, there's probably more than five. You know what? There's six differences I have. There's probably more than that, but I came up with six. So here's the six differences. First, Roman slavery was not based off of race or the color of one's skin. Slaves came from various nations and ethnicities. In fact, in the Roman context, you couldn't tell the difference just by looking at someone if they were a slave or not, just by appearance. Second, the majority of slaves were not slaves for life in the Roman Empire. In fact, by the the time of Jesus in the first century, 50% of slaves were freed before the age of 30. Slaves, in other words, had a, a realistic hope of being freed in their lifetime. A third truth that that is different than the the context of slavery in early America and the Roman context is slaves in the Roman Empire could own property, invest, and save because most weren't going to be slaves for life. A fourth difference is that free persons could sell themselves into slavery knowing that they could later regain their freedom. There's two reasons why someone in the Roman Empire would sell themselves into slavery. First, if you owed a debt you couldn't pay, instead of going to prison, you could sell yourself into slavery to pay off that debt. 
or second, slavery was actually a way of non-Roman citizens to gain Roman citizenship. You could become a slave to, on the path of getting Roman citizenship. It was actually a way of, of um, uh, improving your status in, in the society. Therefore, much of the slavery in the Roman context was voluntar- voluntary and not forced slavery. Fifth, the fifth difference is slaves in the Roman Empire could become highly trained and educated. In fact, many slaves became teachers within the society. A sixth difference is that for most, not all, and I want to be clear on this, not all, but most, being a slave was a much better life than being a day beggar, or being a beggar, a day laborer, or being in prison. Why? Well, day laborers weren't promised food. In other words, if they didn't get work that day, they didn't eat. Beggars, of course, were begging. That was their only means of gaining food or or ways of surviving. And slaves, for the most part, were physically taken care of in the Roman Empire. So although doulos, that word means slave, I think bondservant might be a better translation because it softens the meaning a little bit and, and we can fill in the meaning of what the Roman context looks like for slavery. Now, I want to be careful, though, because I'm not saying, and I hope you hear me, I'm not saying that all slaves were treated well in the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire was a pagan, evil empire before Christianity came in and changed a lot of stuff that was happening. Records have showed horrible abuse, but the treatment of a slave was 100% dependent on the owner or the master. So that's the first question. Second question I want to ask about slavery, Bible and slavery is, does the Bible promote slavery? Right, the Bible allows slavery, but does the Bible promote slavery? And this is another complicated and controversial question to try to answer because it has been used in the history of mankind to promote slavery. And the Bible has been used in all types of ways for evil things. It doesn't mean it's being used correctly. In fact, you know, and I've heard this argument a lot that the Bible has been used to promote slavery, but do you know what else has been used to promote slavery? Evolution. You just look at the early American and, and you'll see, read writings, evolution was used to promote slavery, yet you don't hear people that are arguing talk bad about evolution, but they'll say scripture has been used to promote slavery. Of course, scripture has been used in ways it wasn't intended to be used. There's a couple of questions I want to, or a couple of facts I want to go over before I answer this question. Does the Bible promote slavery? Okay, the fact number one is this, and I want to be clear. The Bible strongly denounces racism. We've gone over this as a church recently. The Bible strongly denounces racism. Anyone that uses the Bible to promote racism is misinterpreting Scripture and not operating from a biblical worldview. Second biblical fact before I answer this question. According to Scripture, slave trading is a horrible evil. In fact, in the Old Testament, slave traders were put to death, or they were supposed to be. Exodus 21.16 says this, Whoever steals a man and sells him, and anyone found in possession of him, shall be put to death. There was a death sentence in the Old Testament for slave trading. And that's a, not just an Old Testament thing. In the New Testament, slave trading was a horrible sin too. 1 Timothy 1.8 says this, Now we know that the law is good if it is used 
um, if one uses it in law, or lawfully, understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the, the unholy and profane, for those who strike their father and mothers, for murderers, for the sexual and moral men who practice homosexuality, enslavers. Enslavers are those who take someone captive in order to sell them into slavery. In the Old Testament, it was a death penalty. In the New Testament, a horrible evil. A third fact, again, before I answer this question, does the Bible promote slavery? Old Testament law gives strict guidelines to how, to how a slave should be traded. We learn from this. Right? The first one was this. In Old Testament law, slaves were to be treated as hired workers, not property. Leviticus 25:41. All men, of course, are made in the image of God. All men are to be treated with dignity and respect. Therefore, men should not be treated as property. Second Old Testament guideline that we can learn from the Old Testament is there shouldn't be any lifelong slavery or generational slavery. Slavery for an Israelite was to last no more than six years. In the year of Jubilee, all slaves were to be freed, Leviticus 25.10. A fourth biblical fact, slaves are encouraged, in the New Testament, slaves were encouraged to seek freedom if it was possible. 1 Corinthians 7.20 says this, each, each one should remain in the condition in which he was called, were you a bondservant? Again, that word slave. Were you a bondservant when called? Do not be concerned about. In other words, trust in God's sovereignty. You can imagine if one third of the population were slaves and the church, the gospel is just spreading. There was many slaves being saved. And, and this passage is saying, trust God in, in his sovereignty where you're at. But if you gain your freedom, or if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself the opportunity for he who is called in the Lord as a bondservant is a free man of the Lord. In other words, slavery was never meant to be a norm for a Christian. We are freed from, from slavery. We are slaves to sin. And we're freed from that slavery to be slaves of Christ. It just happened to be that in the context of the first century, the gospel was going out. There was many slaves and many that were being saved. And this passage is saying, don't think you're a second-rate Christian because you're in slavery. You're not. You're not. Trust in God's sovereignty. So the Bible, so the question, does the Bible promote slavery? The answer is no. It doesn't. I want to be clear, especially the type of slavery that we've seen in early America it allows slavery, the Old and New Testament. It doesn't promote slavery, which leads to a third question. I think this is an important question. Does the Bible undermine slavery? And the answer is yes. You might be asking, well, how does the Bible allow slavery and at the same time undermine slavery? How is that possible? It's possible because the Bible operates from the inside out, not the outside in. Nowhere does the, the Bible advocate for a revolution within the church, or the church should be revolutionaries. The church doesn't wield the sword. 
The church doesn't overthrow governments. The church doesn't overthrow corrupt system. The church proclaims truth, and biblical truth undermines slavery. How does it undermine slavery? By radical brotherhood. We should be learning this throughout the book of Ephesians. Christian bond servants were called brothers in the New Testament. Galatians 3.28 says this, There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. We are all one. Look what it says in Ephesians 6.9. Masters. Verse 9, it says this, Masters, that's the owner. Master, do the same to them. That's the slave. That's the bondservant. And stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours, is in heaven, and that there is no partiality with him. They're equal before the Lord. In fact, turn with me to Philemon 8. That's not chapter 8, that's verse 8. There's only one chapter. Philemon chapter 1, there is no chapter. It's just verse 8. Most of us haven't, might not know where Philemon. Go to Hebrews and make a left. That's Philemon. It's like really short, one page. It's actually a letter to Philemon. That's why it's named Philemon. It's a letter from Paul to Philemon when he was in prison. He wrote this man, Philemon, who was a Christian man. He was a a wealthy man. It's probably where the church met was in his house. And he was a slave owner. And Paul writes to Philemon in verse 8. I'd encourage you to read the whole book, which is a letter that's like one page. Verse 8, it says this, so, Accordingly, though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required. In other words, Paul is saying, as an apostle, I could command you to do what's right, Philemon. But the Bible doesn't work outside in, it works inside out. Look at verse 9. Yet for love's sake, that's inside. For your heart, Yet for love's sake, I prefer to appeal to you. I, Paul, an old man, a prisoner also for Christ Jesus, I appeal to you and your ch- child, or to you and my, or for my child, Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. Onesimus was a bondservant. He was a slave that fled. He fled from Philemon's household. Somehow he fled to Rome. Paul was in prison there, but he was able to meet with people and he got in contact with Paul. He was saved. He became a disciple of Paul. Then Paul sent him back to Philemon to reconcile their relationship. Look at verse 12. I'm sending him back to you, sending my very heart. That's what Paul thought of him. I would have been glad to keep him with me in order that that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel, but I prefer to do nothing without your consent in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion, but of your own accord, again, inside out. Verse 15, for this perhaps is why he was parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever. And listen to verse 16. No longer as a bondservant, but more than a bondservant, as a beloved brother, 
especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. Listen, Paul was focused on the heart. He was focused on the heart. He wanted Philemon to love wantonness, to treat him like a brother, not a slave. I want you to think about that. The New Testament allows slavery, but at the same exact time, it completely undermines slavery. Because all men are made in the image of God. Therefore, all men should be treated with dignity. And Christian brothers that are bondservants are brothers before they are bondservants. Meaning, think about this, all the one another's in scriptures apply. If one treated a bondservant like a Christian brother, like the Bible tells us to treat one another, you're not treating him like a slave. In fact, one commentator said this, although slavery is not uniformly condemned in either the Old or New Testament, the sincere application of the New Testament truth has repeatedly led to the elimination and of its abusive tendencies. Where Christ's love is lived in the power of the Holy Spirit, unjust uh, barriers and relationships are inevitably broken down. As the Roman Empire disintegrated and eventually collapsed, the brutal abuse, abusive system of slavery collapsed with it, due in great measure to the influence of Christianity. In more recent times, the back of the black slave trade was broken in Europe and America due largely to the powerful, spirit-led preaching of such men as John Wesley and George Whitfield, and the godly statesmanship of such men as William Wilberforce and William Pitt. Listen, the biblical worldview undermines slavery. So that's what a bondservant is. That's the background and some questions about slavery and the Bible. And that's not thorough. It's a quick overview of all of Scripture. I mean, just think of Israel in slavery. There's a lot behind this. But I want to answer this next question. This is going to dive into our text a little bit more. What is the conduct of a godly bondservant? What is the conduct of a godly bondservant? Look at Ephesians chapter 6, verse 5. Bondservants, obey your earthly masters. Right? The command here is obedience or submission. Right? But Paul goes from this command of obedience and he gives seven ways a bondservant should obey. He gives the conduct of a godly bondservant. But this leads to an interesting question. Since we don't have slavery or types of bondservants that looks, looks anything like the Roman Empire, especially today, how does this passage apply to us? I believe there's an implication to the employer-employee relationship. I want to be careful on this. This passage is not talking about employers and employees. It's talking about bond servants and masters, but I think there's an implication in how we work. What's the implication? It's a question we should answer. Implication is something that's not directly commanded, but it's implied by the command. Let me give you an example. Look at Ephesians 5.18. It says this, and do not get drunk with wine. What if someone said, well, that's a good thing because I get drunk with beer. 
right? The implication is that you don't get drunk. <laughs> in a similar way, I think godly, the godly conduct of a servant in verses 5 through 8 has the implication of how to serve those that are in authority over us in the workplace, especially the employee-employer relationship. So here's seven ways a bond servant should conduct themselves in their obedience. First way is this. A servant should obey with respect. Look at verse 5. Bond servants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling. The object of this fear and trembling is the human master, but this is not cowardly fear or fright and terror. This is a, a a fear of respect and honor. The proposition with, or preposition with, uh, before fear and trembling denotes a state of mind or attitude. In other words, servants should have an attitude of respect for those they are under. So here's the implication. Employees should respect and honor their employers. And listen, There's no condition here. Even if they're not honorable, right? Even if they're not deserving of respect for their behavior, we are to do our best to respect and honor those that are above us in the workplace. Second, Paul's second way a servant should obey is with integrity. Look at verse five. With a sincere heart, sincere heart. The Greek word translated sincere here means the quality of sincerity, an expression of singleness of purpose or motivation. In other words, it literally means purity of motives, with pure motives at work, not dishonest, deceitful, disloyal, not disrespectful, not prideful, not revengeful, but with pure motives, with godly motives, we should obey in the workplace. A third Servants should obey in obedience to Christ. Look at verse 5. Just says, as you would Christ. Verse 5, as you would Christ. I don't like this translation. It's the ESV's translation. Because it sounds like it's a comparative statement. It makes it sound like a servant should obey in the same manner or in the same way as you would obey Christ. But the word-for-word translation is as to Christ. The NSB, I believe, gets it right. Not as you would Christ, but as to Christ. In other words, Paul is saying a servant's obedience to a master is obedience to Christ. Because submission is commanded by God. That's what as to the Lord means. Servants, obey your earthly masters as to the Lord. Here's the implication. Work hard at your job. As to Christ, in obedience to Christ, to the glory of Christ. A fourth, servants should obey. Fourth way servants should obey is to please God, not people. Look at verse six. Not by the way of eye service as people pleasers. This is a negative command. Verse five is do this. It's a positive command. Do this. Verse six is don't do this. This is the opposite. Verse six tells us how not to work, not by the way of eye service as people pleasers. Eye service conveys the idea that, that the goal of performance is strictly to impress those over you, people, and to leave undone anything which would not be noticed by them. 
People pleasers or only care about what people think. And when you put these two words together, it's outward service without inward dedication or devotion. In other words, you work hard only when people are watching. You slack off when no one's looking. Again, this is the opposite of verse 5. Bond servants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as to Christ. As to Christ means always. Always to the glory of God. Here's the implication. Work hard at your job. As to Christ. In obedience to Christ. To the glory of Christ. Even when people aren't watching. Which leads to a fifth way a servant should obey. With our identity in Christ. With our identity in Christ. Look at verse 6. Not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but, here's the contrast, but as bondservants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. As bondservants, as slaves of Christ, right? Our identity is first before anything else is a slave to Christ. You know, it's interesting, even the master fits this. Right, in the context of this, uh, the relationship between a bondservant and a master, even the master is a slave to Christ before he is anything else. Look at verse 9. Masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he is both their master, Lord, and yours. is in heaven and that there is no partiality with him. Both the Christian bondservant and master are both slaves to Christ before they're anything else. They both should be doing the will of God from the heart. The word actually is not heart there. It's actually soul, your innermost being. Not just to impress people. The sixth way servants should obey is with a good attitude. Verse 7, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man. The Greek word, a good will there is eunoia which means just a state of zeal based upon a desire to be involved in some activity. It's having zeal or enthusiasm. The implication is we should work with a good attitude. Even if we don't love our jobs, we should work with with zeal and enthusiasm because we work for the glory of Christ, not man. Seventh way a servant should obey is with the proper motivation. Look at verse 8 knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bondservant or is free. Again, I want to get back to the context here, because the meaning is, again, bondservant and master. The implication is what we do at work. But the context is slavery here. Many masters would not reward a bondservant for for diligence in their work. So Paul is broadening the perspective beyond just earthly gain. He said, don't work hard just for earthly gain, he's saying. He says, look at verse 8, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord. He'll be rewarded by the Lord, in other words, for his hard work, for his godly character. Does that mean we should work hard at our jobs expecting to be rewarded by God? Yes, 
Yes, verse 8, look, I'm just not getting any clearer. Knowing, knowing that whatever good anyone does, it's not just slaves, it's anyone does, he will be received back from the Lord, whether he is bondservant or is free. That's everyone. Why do we hesitate to say that God rewards those that do good? That God rewards obedience. I claim that hesitation comes from secular philosophy, not the Bible. In particular, Immanuel Kant's influence on ethics. Kant said, according to Immanuel Kant, if you don't know him, that's fine, but his influence has crept into Western civilization. He says, an action is morally good only if it is done out of a sense of duty and it derives no benefit from it of any sort, neither material or spiritual. A benefit a benefit destroys the moral value of an action. You know what? That's what most Christians think. That's unbiblical. I look at verse 8. I'm just, I mean, this is the Bible, verse 8, knowing. In other words, keep in mind, don't forget this. When you work hard, don't forget this. That's what knowing means. Knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord. That's a reward. Whether he is a bondservant or is free. We should be motivated by reward, in other words. I know some of us are, are struggling with that. You know that's the core of the Christian faith? It's, I'm not, scripture, Hebrews 11:6. And without faith, it's impossible to please him, that's God. Whoever draws near to God must believe these two things. This is what faith is, that he exists, that's one, and he rewards those that seek him, that's two. That's faith. And our greatest example Jesus went to the cross for a reward. Hebrews 12, 2, and I'm never going to stop quoting this passage. We should all have it memorizing. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, right? This is our example. For the joy set before him, that's the reward. He endured the cross. That's the obedience. He endured the cross, hard obedience for the joy that was set before him. He was seeking joy. He was seeking a reward. Here's the implication. Work hard at work, knowing, keeping in mind as you're working, that God rewards those who are obedient to him. I know some of you are probably thinking, Nathan, isn't that the health, wealth, and prosperity gospel? Isn't that the health, wealth, and prosperity teaching? No, it's not. You know why? I never said the reward was health, wealth, or prosperity. In fact, God, were, God nowhere promises health, wealth, and prosperity in this life for obedience. We are promised a reward, but here's where faith comes in. We trust that God is the one that picks the reward. We don't. We trust him with the reward. We trust him with everything. In our obedience, we have faith in that, but we even trust him in the reward, that he knows what we want better than we know what we want. But listen, there's one thing he does promise about the reward. It will bring great joy. It will bring great joy. In fact, it says, for the joy set before him, Jesus obeyed. That's our example. And isn't the pursuit of joy what motivates us for anything? Think about that. People seek wealth, 
health and prosperity to be joy-filled. But God knows that wealth, health, and prosperity does not guarantee joy. There's plenty of people that are wealthy, that are healthy, and that are prosperous, that are miserable. In fact, we're the richest country that's ever lived in the history of mankind, and we're the most depressed country that's ever lived in the history of mankind. We have wealth, we have health, and we have prosperity, and we are depressed. You know, sometimes it's God's goodness that he doesn't give us those things. God is offering us joy. That's the reward. Seek him, find joy. Listen, if you don't know Jesus, seek him for joy. There's nothing else that will satisfy in this world. I know for you high schoolers or anyone younger than that, you're like, ah, no, I want to see if there's joy out there in this world. But for, for us that are a little bit older, and I'm putting myself in there now, I'm starting to see things that I'm like, oh, man. We know that this earth will not bring joy. God is promising you joy. If you don't know him, put your faith in him. Trust in him. He came and lived a perfect life, died on the cross for your sins, and was raised on the third day that, that he is Lord of Lord and King of Kings. But that being raised tells us that, that there's a promise for us to be raised one day to in, in everlasting joy. Seek him for joy. Work hard at work for joy. Be a good husband for joy. For the glory of God, for joy. What's the chief end of man? Chief end of man that we glorify God and enjoy him forever. They didn't put that in there by accident. Leads me to my third point. I got off track, sorry. What's the conduct of a godly master? That's the conduct of a godly servant. What's the conduct of a godly master? Look at verse 9. Masters, do the same to them. That's interesting. Them is the servant, right? Bond servant. Do the same to them. What does it mean to do the same to them? Well, I, I just want to be clear. It can't mean obey. Right? Someone has to be an authority, and that's not what it's saying. So what does it mean to do the same to them? I believe it means to have the same godly character as, as what I just told them to have. The seven ways a bondservant should, should obey their masters are the seven ways a master should treat a bondservant. With respect, with integrity, in obedience to Christ, to please God, not people with our identity in Christ, with a, with a godly, good attitude, with, with proper motivation. Masters, do the same to them. And then Paul adds, and stop your threatening. Threatening is not a godly conduct. It's not something that we should be doing as Christians. But it is how most masters treated their bondservants in the Roman Empire. They motivated them by threatening. Paul says, don't do that. And stop your threatening, knowing, again, there's that word. In other words, keep this in mind. As you interact with those that are under you, keep this in mind, knowing that he, is, he who is both their master, their Lord, and yours is in heaven, and that there is no partiality with him. Both bondservants and masters, we will be held accountable by the ultimate master in heaven, equally. 
No partiality with him. This is throughout scripture. In fact, Romans 2, 9 says this, there will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil. Seek God joy, seek evil destruction, by the way. The Jew first and also the Greek. But glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good. The Jew first and also the Greek. For God shows no partiality. What's that mean? There's no partiality in race. Greek, Jew, no partiality in race or ethnicity with God. James 2.1, my brothers, show no partiality as you hold um, the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a, a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in. In other words, if a, if a rich man comes in and a poor man comes in, treat them the same because God shows no partiality. Colossians 3.22, bond servants, obeying everything, those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with the sincerity of, of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartedly as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as, as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ for the wrongdoer, will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. There's no partiality in master and slave. In fact, verse 9, look at verse 9 again. Ephesians 6, verse 9. This, nine, this, this verse would have been shocking in the first century. Masters do the same to them. There's equality here. And stop your threatening knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven. Again, equality. And he just flats out says it then after that, and that there is no partiality with him. In the first century, those that were rich, right, were considered to be blessed by God because they were righteous, and it's not true. And those that were poor were being cursed by God because they were sinners, and that wasn't true. God says there is no partiality. They both are equal. In fact, that's what Galatians 3.28, there is neither Jew and Greek, there's neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. The, the, the slave that was saved and the master that was saved were both sinners before they were saved and saved by grace after they were saved, equally. doesn't mean they didn't have different roles, different authority, different jobs. It means ultimately our identity is the same in Christ. In fact, this is where I want to end the sermon this morning. I think the main application and the main, main meaning of this passage, that if, if you are a Christian, your identity is not found in, in what you do for work, found being in Christ. I mean, think about this. Usually the first two questions you ask someone when you first meet him is what? What is your name? What do you do? Right? What we do for work is so, that's so tied into our identity. It becomes who we are. But your identity should not be in what you do. If you're a doctor, 
If you're a police officer, a teacher, if you're a prison guard, a business owner, an engineer, a nurse, if you're a stay-at-home mother, your identity more than anything else is being in Christ if you're a Christian. I just want you to see as we go through this passage this morning, the Christological focus of this passage. Every single verse points to Christ. Verse 5, as you would Christ. Verse 6, as bondservants of Christ. Verse 7, as to the Lord and not to man. Verse 8, he will receive back from the Lord. Even the master, verse 9, masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master, that's the Lord, that's Jesus, and yours. Jesus is your master. Keep that in mind. He's in heaven and that there is no partiality with him. Listen, because your ultimate identity is in Christ, everything you should do should flow out of that. You should work hard at your job with integrity to the glory of Christ. You should do all things to the glory of God. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, God, Lord, I just pray, Lord, that again, as I do always at Country Oaks, Lord, that that the the body here, Lord, is a witness to our community, Lord, and to those around us. And I especially pray that this morning for, for those that go out and are working, Lord. I pray for the stay-at-home mom, that she would be a good example of Christ to her kids, Lord. I pray for those that, that are engineers, that are prison guards, those that, that are working in all the different fields around Tehachapi, Lord, that they are, are witnesses of you, Lord, with their integrity, with their hard work, Lord, with their, their attitudes, Lord, that they point to you, that they, they image your son, Lord, in the workplace. God, I know this passage is talking about the relationship between a bondservant and a master, but if, if a bondservant is called to, to serve with integrity, how much more are we as free men in the workplace called to do that? Help us to be motivated by our identity in you, to be a witness of you, to the glory of you. In your son's name, amen.